Welcome to Changeboard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. I'm Tom Ritchie, Changeboard's digital editor. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe. The Future Talent Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm joined by Scott Snyder, a partner at Hydric Consulting. Scott has over 25 years of experience in business leadership, strategic planning, and technology management for Fortune 500 companies and startups. A recognized thought leader in a recognized thought leader in the tech management space, he is the author of two books, the most recent of which, Goliath's Revenge, is a practical guide for executives and leaders of established companies in adopting the strategies used by startups in capitalizing on digital disruption. In this podcast, I asked Scott about the traits that innovative businesses share, how leaders can put their people first in periods of digital transformation, and how leaders must view their own careers in periods of disruption. Hi, Scott. Thanks for agreeing to uh, speak with us today. Um, Could we just start by talking about your new book, Goliath's Revenge? Uh, What is it about? um, Which companies do you profile? And how did you conduct your research? Sure. Uh, Goliath's Revenge is really telling the story about the established companies that were able to pull or steal a a page from the playbook of Silicon Valley or startups and execute that within an ongoing established business. Um, We felt like there was lots of attention being put on the Davids of the world, but maybe not enough on the Goliaths that actually had successfully transformed themselves. And uh, is that was there a, a framework or a specific trait that you found uh, innovative businesses share? Yeah, we we kind of boiled this down to six rules or kind of six I'll call it paths that these companies seem to follow, and some emphasize more than others. Um, you know, the first being you can't play small in a digital world. You have to go for step change outcomes. Uh, we call those ten x outcomes, and then you need a staircase to get there in a logical way. Um, that really guides your digital ambition. Um, Second, you need to balance both the continual innovation around your current business model while you run at another speed and and pursue breakthrough and disruptive innovation around your future business model. Uh, And that's difficult for lots of reasons for companies to do in parallel, Um, but but it can be done. Uh, The third is really... Uh, treating data as currency. So thinking like a data company, having a data mindset, both to innovate inside and outside your company. Uh, Something a lot of companies sit on lots of data, but they don't realize they have all that data asset and and can use it as their advantage. Fourth is um, being able to create ecosystems and tap into innovators outside your walls. The fifth rule is using or valuing talent over technology. Mm. And that's a tough one. You think in a digital world, it's all about technology and technology capabilities, but it's really about thinking of what roles and skills you're gonna need in the future to survive in a a world filled with AI and digital technologies. And then the last one is really about your purpose. Uh, Many companies have a compelling purpose. Some need to generate one. But if you don't have a purpose that is relevant to digital natives inside and outside your company, and one that can also fuel innovation, um, then you're going to be left flat-footed. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to touch on some of those um, rules in a little bit more detail. Sure. So um, 
there was one the one that you mentioned about um, valuing talent over technology uh, could you explain what that kind of looks like more in detail in practice in these in these uh, innovative businesses sure I, I think there's been a lot of attention on what we call the three D's uh, design development data science which are kind of the skills everybody's clamoring for in a digital world uh, but we think there's actually other skills and roles that could be equally important and some aren't necessarily technical roles like having product managers that understand digital but also understand new and evolving marketplaces and business models. Um, having folks that can provide the controls and governance to absorb things like AI into an existing business model, mm. uh, which wasn't, isn't always easy for lots of reasons, right? For ethics reasons, for just uh, human enablement reasons. Um, and even having venture leaders that can cross the boundaries of those two speeds I talked about earlier. So people that could take a concept from a lab or a, or a digital studio and then bring it back and scale it in an established business. Um, those types of entrepreneurs have very unique skills that aren't necessarily just found in entrepreneurs or just found in people in corporations. Typically, you got to groom them. Mm. And the question... You've you've touched on it there as well. Like the question of digital disruption is is often viewed from a te technology perspective first, um, and the human effect is often seen as a consequence of technological change. So, how can leaders reframe that issue to put forward a more positive case for the human side of technological advancements? Yeah, it's a it's a great question because uh, actually in the book we talk about uh, two things related to that. One is. Um, as a leader, especially if you're a non-technical leader or didn't come from a technical background, um, disruption can seem overwhelming because, you know, we weren't talking about blockchain two years ago. Now it's one of the most intense technology discussions happening. Um, that's going to continue to happen. We can guarantee the change is going to happen and it's going to accelerate even more. So rather than trying to, you know, bet on or pick exactly the right technologies, we'd rather say build competencies in your leaders, your your organization, your people of what we call digital dexterity, the ability to live in the present, use tools like digital to make your current business more efficient, but also have an eye towards where the future can go, um, because then you'll be able to process that next change and translate it and have the organizational culture that can absorb that and turn it into something valuable or an innovation. So that's one is creating this culture where um, continuous innovation experimentation is actually encouraged and that mm -hmm. can include failures while you're also running your current business. Um, the, the second part of that is really thinking ahead of what these technologies could do to your human workforce, right? So we talk about the three phases of AI. The first is we're kind of in that honeymoon experimentation phase where it's a shiny object. People are applying it to things like processing or customer service um, or even prediction, predicting demand for their stores. Some of those use cases um, are easy because they don't necessarily displace human workers. Others create tension, right? So. Uh, for instance, there's a retailer that has robots roaming their stores. Um, some employees have unplugged those right at night because they see them as a threat to their job. Or um, some human customers have responded to talking to a chatbot as uh, artificial, right? And they don't they want to talk to a human. So 
I think companies are just learning as they go through this experimentation phase where it makes sense to amplify humans and where it makes sense to offload very heavy lifting with automation, AI, digital technologies. And I think that that equilibrium that we'll eventually get to, the companies that get there first and think ahead and put the controls and governance and 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 do it in a respectful way with their workforce are going to actually succeed a, a lot faster than the ones mm. who don't. Yeah. And uh, there was another one of the rules um, that I wanted to dig a little deeper into as well, which was... Um, and, and that's why continuous innovation is so important um, while you create the space because disruptive innovation by its nature um, is going to drive tension. It's mm. probably going to uh, threaten your current business model. It might cannibalize your current business. So it needs air cover. It needs uh, CXO level protection. Um, but while you're doing that, what you don't want to do is create a culture of haves and have nots. You know, the people that are off slaving away, trying to make the current business better, feel like they're underappreciated while, you know, somebody's off in, in some cool uh, tech garage creating the next cool yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, you have to align those people through the purpose of the company. You know, what's the direction? Why is it just as important, uh, you know, the folks that are working on the car line today making the electric vehicle uh, is why is that important that they're going to build that so the ride sharing company can be better? And that's mm. the case at General Motors, right? Yeah. And I guess that kind of leads on to a, the question then how can business leaders create an environment that is conducive to having both that big and little um, eye innovation? Yeah, I think it's it's it goes back to <clears throat> digital dexterity and establishing a culture of innovation mm. where um, you empower employees in, in the current business to basically continuously innovate, experiment, and use things like digital technologies, whether it's um, you know a sales team that basically can make more sales calls because they're using things like augmented reality or they're using AI to predict which customers I should see today. Um, that's a, an innovation that can be done around your current business model um, allowing employees to access those technologies, giving them the resources and support to go deploy those innovations instead of the classic suggestion box or idea management system, which typically is a black hole and goes nowhere. And then on the big eye side, um, once again, creating the air cover and space mm. that allows those, um, those ideas oxygen and runway because they typically if you if you let out the short-term lens of the current business they're going to say that's a distraction it's not my priority they're going to try and kill it so you really need to manage both as a leadership team mm. um, and so what 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 have you found is the most common problem that your clients and also the, the companies that you've researched um for the book what's the what's the most common problem they have when they're looking to go through a period of digital disruption or a, digital, a period of digital innovation? Uh, I think a couple things. One is they're expecting immediate results. Um, and if you look at all the cases in the book, none took fewer than three to five years. Mm. So these are courageous long-term journeys, and they require lots of groundwork to put in place the kind of culture, pathways, organization structures, talent, to go be in a position where you can run this two-speed type of business model we talk about. So that's one is, is this maybe false expectation. This is something we can go through our digital transformation project and in a year we're going to be a different company and we're going to be operating differently. That, that couldn't be further from the truth and it's why about 50% of digital transformations are failing right mm -hmm. now to achieve their objectives. They don't stick. 
Um, the second part is I, I think the lack of focus on um, on building the talent um, and and building these you know I almost call them triathletes with digital dexterity that can be executors can be transformers, but also um, visionaries and, and innovators, right? So they almost have to live in all three of those dimensions continuously. Uh, and the more you can create that crop of, of those people with high digital dexterity in your organization that can run at both speeds, um, the more capable you are to adapt to the next technology, whether it's blockchain or son of blockchain or you know mixed reality or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and then I think the third mistake uh people make is really um thinking digital as a thing or a technology and not a way of being and and actually acting uh, as a business right it's it's just a mode of how you're going to do business how you're going to interact with customers um how you're going to operate and lead in the future mm. and as soon as you can get on with that concept, then the innovation part becomes easy. But if you still think digital is a bunch of things to implement or uh, or a bunch of boxes to check, then you're probably going to fall short. Yeah. And could you give us a, a specific example of a business that maybe you've researched during the course of writing the book that has made a success of turning disruption into innovation? Yeah, I th I'll, I'll give you two. I mean, the first one uh, we kind of lead the book with, and and we ask the hypothetical question, "Who's this company?" Right? And if you read the description, you probably think it's Tesla or Google mm. Waymo or somebody, but it's really General Motors, right? And yeah. General Motors, for a lot of people, they still associate with this big slow company that almost went bankrupt. Um, and then if you look at what Mary Barra's done. Um, you know, over the last six years, once again, not an overnight journey, but a commitment to basically build the kind of muscle and capability around innovating around the current product, right? Making the car more efficient with electricity or electrification and autonomy, having to realize they didn't have that skill set. So going out and buying crews, but then also having the courage to start incubating other business models, realizing that they're just going to be a sustainable transportation company in the future, not just a car company. Um, and starting to um, to make bets in those areas like their investment in Lyft, creating something called Maven, which is, is really a fully maintained um, and serviced car that can be used by gig economy workers um, that has become a really quiet but uh, really successful story. Um, and also quietly being the company with 200,000 uh, electric vehicles on the road, which mm -hmm. is pretty awesome. So I think having a company that's you know that big and has been around that long and realizing that they can pull off this kind of disruption, it gives you confidence as a leader that it's possible, mm. right? And I am you know, and then obviously the other ones that I think are a little bit maybe less known by some people, but Discovery Health out of South Africa. Uh, which was started by an actuary out of the insurance industry, um, Adrian Gore, who realized the insurance industry was kind of broken. It wasn't about helping customers live better lives or making them healthier, which in theory should benefit both sides. Uh, it was more about pushing the risk back on the customer and having them pay for it. Um, they hatched a brand new business model called Vitality, which is now the biggest corporate wellness platform mm. in the world. Uh, they were progressive in partnering with companies like Apple and using data from the Apple Watch to allow people to take control of their own health. And and by default, 
uh, actually helping lower the risk for both sides, right? The insurer and also the employee. And they've now uh, springboarded that innovation into other areas like, you know, shared risk on car insurance, life insurance, and really a progressive company. Um, and they're, they're featured in the book as well. From a more personal side of things, how should leaders view their own careers in, in this age of disruption? So um, does the way they view their own careers have to be as innovative as what they do <laughs> for their businesses? Yeah, I think... Um, I think it's a great question, right? Because um, it's easy to think if you're a non-technical leader, you're way behind, right? Mm. And I think that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, this digital era more than ever requires self-awareness as a leader of where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are. It doesn't mean you can't get better and you can't educate yourself to bring, you know, for instance, if you score low on understanding how to use data and machine learning, and you need to be more aware of that as a leader because you're in an industry like insurance or retail where it's going to be a, a critical dimension of competitive advantage. You probably want to raise your game, but you also want to make sure that you fill in gaps in your team. Maybe you need a chief AI officer. Maybe you need to make sure you have a CTO that's a rock star on using data. Um, but and making sure that you have the muscle in your team as you incubate these new ventures. So, so I think self-awareness is really important. And this, once again, back to this notion of, of building digital dexterity across the board, that's your job as a leader to make sure you fill in those talent gaps and you, you lean forward, not backwards, in terms of how you think about the kind of organization you want to build. Um, I think the other thing is you have to be honest with where you are today and and how far you can move in a reasonable amount of time and set the expectation and the compass in that direction um and i think picking the right organization structure to do that a lot of uh in fact we just wrote an article on knowledge of warden uh that was kind of provocatively titled so you think you need a chief digital officer mm. and really if you peel the onion on that question Hiring a CDO is an easy answer for sometimes CEOs and boards, but it's not always the right one. There is a reason to have a CDO sometimes for certain org structures, but in, in many other ways, it's more about building the capability that can be sustainable over time. Much like people hired e-commerce uh, executives long time ago when, when e-commerce became this urgency for businesses, and now in many uh, businesses, e-commerce are just blended into multi-channel marketing, right, or multi-channel mm -hmm. sales. So I think we just need to be careful about reactionary steps versus thoughtful steps about what we're trying to build for the long term. Mm. And uh, just to finish, so obviously the book is uh, all about the Goliaths of the world. What are your tips um, for the Davids? What can the Davids learn from the Goliaths and what can the Goliaths learn from the Davids? Yeah, it's a great question. And and I will point out, and we tried to make this book somewhat inclusive, that you can be a small Goliath, right? Mm. You could be an insurance agency or a movie theater in a market that's been around a while that digital's affecting your business, right? And And you may not have all the resources of a GM, but you still have the ability to think differently about your business and deploy some of these, these capabilities around the roles. Um, but I think the notion that Goliaths sit on an incumbent advantage, mm. and many times they don't realize what that incumbent advantage is. It could be customer data. It could be brand equity. It could be ability to manage regulation, right, in an industry like banking that startups don't have, right? Mm. And, and those new entrants in startups might have freshly minted capital and Silicon Valley talent. 
um, and and lots of ambition and and kind of courage, but they lack a lot of the industry knowledge and depth and trust that some of these companies have built over a hundred years. Um, so in many cases, that's why you see in the fintech world most most fintechs are losing money, the successful ones. Um, and the ones that are figuring out how to scale are typically partnering with large banks or established players. So you're starting to see this meeting in the middle. I think what Goliath can learn from David's clearly, that's really what the book's about. It's, mm -hmm. it's how do you uh, build some of that courage, entrepreneurial spirit, risk taking, which is usually an aversion in big companies, experiment, experimental mindset, and also... Um, the ability to um, try a bunch of things, really realizing a few of them are going to fail um, and providing the space for that is very hard in big companies. But I think that's where they can use both innovators inside and outside their walls to, to and creating the space for that innovation to happen uh, will pay off. Scott, thank you very much for your time. Great. Thanks. Scott will be joining us at the 6th Future Talent Conference at the Royal Geographical Society in London on the 21st of March. Our lineup of speakers include the CEO of Stonewall, Ruth Hunt, author and journalist Matthew Saeed, and the philosopher Robert Roland Smith. Visit ftconf2019.com, that's ftconf2019.com, to register for your ticket. Thanks for listening. And we look forward to bringing you another Future Talent podcast very soon. Mm -hmm.